This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dina Metzger. Dina is an award-winning novelist, poet, teacher, healer, and counselor. For more than four decades, she has taught, mentored, counseled, and visioned with writers, healers, medical practitioners, and visionaries, helping to bring forth a new culture in alignment with the natural world, indigenous knowledge, and new and ancient wisdom traditions. She's the author of the book, Writing for Your Life, many novels and other works, as well as the Sounds True audio program, This Body, My Life, in which she shares the story of her recovery from breast cancer and a radical mastectomy, and her profound discovery that creativity and the imagination can heal. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dina and I spoke about listening to the story our illness is telling us, and her work with the Revisioning Medical Alliance, an alliance that cultivates a dialogue between Western medical professionals and traditional medicine people. We also talked about her work to create what she calls a literature of restoration, a literature to overcome the dominant commercial and economic values of the world in order to value and restore what is life-giving. And finally, we talked about the concept of the fifth world, a world in the making that Dina invites us to help create. Here's my conversation with the very poetic and heartfelt Dina Metzger. Dina, you and I are now having this chance to speak together after over two decades. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, it was 20 years ago or so that we worked together to create a program with Sounds True called This Body, My Life. And I just feel so lucky that our lives have circled back around that we're together again. Well, I'm very glad for it as well. I want to go back to the period of time that we were in and the work that you were focused on at that time, which was on healing stories and how someone could work with an illness in such a way through writing and storytelling that they could turn really what could be quite a difficult and often is a very difficult experience of illness into something that is therapeutic and healing. And I wonder, to begin with, if you could talk some about that. Perhaps someone's listening right now who is suffering with an illness in some way. How might they approach that? Well, I've been thinking about that um, very deeply since then. And um, that work came to me from my own experience in 1977 when I had breast cancer. And when I realized that 
I was uh, I was in a story uh, that illuminated the path of healing, and that understanding, which we talked about in I think '92, continued and deepened. And one of the ways that it's been realized is um, through what I've been calling revisioning medicine, which has been to bring together um, physicians, medical people, and medicine people to see if we can help create, recreate, or restore a medicine uh, healing ways um, that do no harm. And uh, one of the ideas, or one of the principles or activities in revisioning medicine is really listening to the story that the illness is telling. And that shifts the way one experiences illness because instead of being completely and absolutely laid out and, and uh, devastated by Um, being ill, one can also listen for what the illness is telling us. And very often it leads us in very particular ways to changing our lives and living differently so that we begin to live in a healing modality. And so we heal accordingly. So we try to create, try to listen to the illness and, and, and see what can be shifted in our environment or in our thinking or in our ways of relating so that we are actually beginning to live as healing presences. And one of the first people that get healed by this is the person who's suffering. And sometimes there are dramatic dramatic results. Um, So that conversation which we had um, remained very central to the ways that I've been living. Nadina, I'm curious if you could share with us from your own life experience and your own journey through cancer, what was the message that cancer brought to you, if you would say there's a message in illness? Well, the first message that came to me was before I knew that I had cancer because I was working on a novel and I was asking a question, why do so many women have cancer? Why now? Why so young? And many answers came to me. Um, The one that was most profound was uh, that cancer was silence, or that cancer came out of being silenced. And um, I had had a dream in which I was silenced, and I had been listening to the stories of many uh, women, because I was teaching in three different educational institutions at that time, and I saw how many women had cancer suddenly, and no one was talking about it. And when I would afterwards go and lecture in whether it was hospitals or uh, universities about cancer and healing, and I would say cancer is silence, I would see that recognition 
in particularly women's um, eyes. And they would tell the stories of being silenced um, or not being recognized for who they are or not being able to live the lives they wanted and had hoped to live. Um, Interestingly enough, in my own journey, because I was always very outspoken, I wondered why this understanding had come to me. And it took being in Tennessee last September at a revisioning medicine council when I realized that as outspoken as I had been, there was something that I always hesitated to talk about publicly. And that was my deep sense of the existence of spirit. Hmm. And though I have lived my life accordingly, and though I've written about it, uh, to say to the world, uh, spirit exists, I experience it, I try to guide people to what I call the pathless path. I'm not talking about religion now. I'm talking about the real existence of spirit and its activity, its benevolent activity in our lives. And I just gave a talk uh, for um, Ms. Magazine and the Feminist Majority, of which I called The Brief History of a Feminist Mind. And in that talk, I told various stories about the way spirit had enacted itself in my life. And afterwards, a woman came up to me and she said, that was a very courageous talk. And I said, well, really? (laughs) It could be many things, but why courageous? And she said, well, because you talked about uh, your experience of spirit. And so I look back, now we're in 2014, to... 1977, when um, I had cancer, and I learned from spirit that cancer was silence, but I didn't know where I had been silenced fully until last year. Dina, it's so powerful for me to hear you say this, really that for many people coming out, if you will, coming out of the closet in terms of, you could call it a love of God or spirit being the most important thing moving through our lives, that this, it really does require taking a public stance often in conversations in terms of what's really important to me. And it's interesting that something that seems like it wouldn't be that threatening actually requires so much to step forward into it. Right. And then to, I'm going to say, admit the ways that you have seen spirit active. Now, I have been the most fortunate of people because I can tell, uh, I want to say hundreds of stories of seeing spirit active, meaning watching and experiencing things happen that could not have happened simply from human activity. 
and acknowledging that what we call coincidence, if you if it happens again and again and again and again, cannot be simply chance, but there is some active principle. And also, this is what indigenous people have always known, and that's how we lived. And so we're silenced in part because the dominant culture has wanted to silence that wisdom that indigenous people carry. And it's why the women were burned at the stake. And, you know, so there's a whole history of silencing. Now, it's interesting that what you discovered was that the way in which you had been willing to be silenced or that you were silenced by the culture had to do with speaking out for spirit in the world. But it seems that each person probably in their own way has to investigate, is it a question of being silenced? What is the message that they're receiving from whatever illness they might be experiencing? And I'm wondering, what advice do you have or what directions could you point people in to help them discover the message that illness might be bringing for them? Looking for the well, I I, I ask um, a kind of fundamental question when I work with someone, and it's it, it is why did this illness in particular come to me in particular at this time? And to ask that question without entering into I brought this on to myself, because that is not the direction. It is that. We're all um, uh, we're all suffering. We're all f- flawed. We're all struggling to come to consciousness, and sometimes illness is the way that that happens. Um, if we can get out of blame and guilt, um, but actually bring curiosity to bear then we can begin to explore it. And one of the ways of exploring it is looking at the metaphor, really looking deeply into the metaphor of of the illness. Um, And it's not a direct, it's not a direct line. It calls us to look at the story of our lives. It calls us to look at what dreams are coming to us, what experiences we've had that we didn't create ourselves. Um, It it calls us, in in a sense, to look at the unarticulated goodness that has surrounded us. And where might that carry us further? Trying to think of um, a recent example of of something, a, a, a... a woman came uh, to us uh, who was suffering a variety of of illnesses. She was just taken down by those mysterious illnesses that seem to be abounding, um, which are sometimes called Lyme disease or um, uh, Epstein-Barr. Or there are all kinds of names for we don't really know what's going on and what causes it. But 
they they're characterized by exhaustion and not really not being able to to function and she happened to be very knowledgeable medically and in terms of natural medicine and so she had investigated all the physical biological uh pathways but then she told the story and just in terms of telling me the story of her life um she told the story of having been born on a um Native American reservation. And uh, she lived there until she was three years old. And she said, um, you know, we left when, when, when I was three, and somehow it's I was given these gifts when we left, that I was given a pipe. And um, we talked about this, and I said, really interesting you'd be given a pipe do you know why you were given a pipe she said no I had no idea but as it turned out and as we talked what was also going on for her at the time was that there was a discrepancy between uh, the work that she was doing and um, the values that within which she was following this work and we could say the the values of um, Native American values, all my relations, for example. So she was in a competitive world, and there were other values that contradict that or challenge mm-hmm. that. And at one particular moment, I took a, a medicine pipe, a peace pipe, and I put it in her hands. And... It was like she was struck by lightning. She howled in anguish. Something came through her. It complete, Fortunately, there were a group of people here who witnessed this and could hold her while she just wailed. And afterwards, we said, what happened? And she said, I don't know, but it was like she'd come home. So her path of healing, in addition to everything else, is to find the values that are really deep for her and live accordingly. I'm imagining, Dina, someone who might be listening, and this is what's coming to me, which is this person's listening and says, you know, if I really turn to what's happening inside me in relationship to this illness, and I start writing about it, I'm imagining tremendous venom coming out of the pen, how angry I am that I'm sick like this, how angry I am that the environment has these types of pollutants. I have so much anger. How is this going to be a healing story, so to speak, when I'm so angry? Well, I I, I think you, uh, you said it. Uh, first, there's the anger, but what you said was, I'm so angry because I'm ill, and I'm so angry about the pollutants. And then we're called to see what can we do and how can we live, because we're all colluding in those pollutants, so we're killing ourselves. So 
after the anger, there's consciousness. The anger may still be there, but we become conscious. And when we become conscious, then we start living differently, and we live on behalf of our own lives, but we live on behalf of the Earth's life as well. And and that connection with the Earth is essential because we can be angry about the, and, and rightly so, and must be about the pollutants of the Earth, but we also begin to love the Earth then when we understand her suffering. And these kinds of alliances on behalf of living differently so that the life force begins to emerge again makes all the difference. And sometimes it also boosts the immune system. And things happen in our bodies which surprise us. And those are also healing events. We not only get ill, we also get well. The body has a natural healing ability which we need to find and enhance. And very often, the medicines that we take undermine the immune system, for example, and undermine the healing uh, possibilities of our bodies. And so we begin looking for new medicines and sometimes going out on the earth and blessing the earth and weeping with her is the first essential medicine we have to take. You mentioned, Dina, this alliance that you've created called Revisioning Medicine, bringing together indigenous medicine with Western medical ways. Can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of discoveries this alliance is making about how we can actually revision medicine in our world? Yes, I'd like to read you the questions that we're asking because the way I've worked for my entire life is not to answer questions so much. I address them, but more importantly, to ask them. That's something you and I have in common, asking a lot of questions. (laughs) Right, because then we walk in the world thinking about things. So the first question is, can medical people also be medicine people. How can we restore the role of community as integral to healing? So that question has an answer in it. It it says that, that community uh, is, is a healing process uh, rather than, you know, going into a doctor's office. You don't know the doctor. Um, he or she closes the door uh, you never learn anything about them. You, you have the most intimate and the most disconnected relationship at the same time. Quite different from having community involved in healing. The third is, can physicians and health practitioners serve the community in the best ways that medicine persons serve their tribes or indigenous communities? Can we speak openly and honestly and from the heart about the grief and vision we carry about medical ways and healing? Here we're talking about iatrogenic uh, events where it is the medical process itself which is making us ill. Can we examine together what we want to change and what we must reject? 
how do we determine the entire story of the illness or the affliction so that we can truly open the door to healing, which also implies wholeness. So that if I go to the doctor's office and I'm talking about what's wrong, he's not going to know about my silence. Or he's not going to know that... Uh, uh, or. That there's another value system that wants to be expressed through me, and that not expressing it makes me ill. But that's the whole story. How can medical practices be informed by spirit and earth-centered practices? There was a book many, many years ago um, called um, "Healing Healing from the War." And um, it was written by a psychologist who was in Vietnam. And what he found then and what I think we're still finding now is that the healing for the veterans who came home who were so distraught and agonized about having fought in Vietnam, uh, the only healing he could find was to take them to the woods where they could tell their story. So... um, you know, there are various things that I come back to over and over again, no matter what I'm looking at, that the relationship with the earth, the real honoring of the relationship with the earth, the honoring of the old ways of knowing, uh, which were earth-centered and spirit-centered, uh, alliances with the old ways, alliances with the animals and and the spirits, these are the healing ways. And my life just takes me increasingly into experiences which sustain this understanding. Now, in speaking about the connection that is possible that we can feel with the natural world, with the earth, and with animals. I know that in the past decade, you've made several trips to Africa and have befriended the elephant ambassador, as you call this elephant. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that experience and what your insight is about our relationship with animals and healing. Well, I'd like to change the way you phrased it if you don't mind, because... Help me, Dina, help me. (laughs) He befriended me. And that is the point. I met an elephant, and what I was clear about was that he had the intent. He was the active one. And that changes everything, because I am no longer than the human being at the top of the... Of, of the scale. We're out of hierarchy. And I saw that an animal could come to meet me and communicate with me in ways that could only indicate his intent. Now, had I only met this animal once, it would have been um, astonishing. And I lived on that event for a long time. But in fact, we have met four times. And you you may know that there's no um, email connection or telephone (laughs) between uh, a human in uh, California 
and an elephant in the wild in, at Chobe National Park in Botswana. But I've gone back there four times, and every time on the last day that I'm there, though I go out all the time, the last day that I'm there, the last hour that I can be in the park before I have to leave, or the park will be closed and I won't be able to get out, at the very same place, an elephant or the elephants come and Something happens between us that I could not choreograph in any way that leaves me the only logical understanding that it is the elephant coming to us and spirit's activity, and we're all in the field of spirit. Now, just to be clear here, so this is the same elephant each trip that you've made to Botswana that's coming to visit you? Well, I don't know, because the first time he came alone, um, the second time there was a male elephant there, and then he brought his, um, well, I have to say, his, his partner, his wife, his, his, uh, the woman, uh, and the children and introduce them, so to speak. And then through, well, it's it's such a long story, I don't want to diminish it, Uh, but ultimately he gave me, undeniably, the greatest gift that an elephant can give a human. That is, he threw a bone to me. And... Um, an elephant bone. And because elephants have a very complex social system that is sustained to a great extent by their mourning rituals, by their relationship to their dead, so they can recognize the bones of one of their ancestors 20 years after the death. They will go over to it if they come on those bones, and they'll stroke it, and, and, and you will quickly see who who that bone belongs to by who comes out from the herd and and meets it. So he gave me this enormous gift. And the very last time that um, he came, um, there was a male, there was a female. This time there was a herd and a baby, and we were involved in a story with them. This is all on my website with photographs. Um, so that someone can go to to the website and the story of, of my history with the one I call the elephant ambassador, whether it's the same or a representation, you know, or another elephant, I don't know, but it's a male elephant uh, who comes every time and seems to be um, significant to the herd. Uh, the essay is called The Language of Relationship, Engagement with Elephants. And you said, Dina, and you said this in the process of correcting me, that the elephant ambassador was the one who befriended you, who initiated this relationship with a particular, it sounds like, intent or message or sense of something 
needing to be communicated. What would you surmise is that message? I, I think the message is that um, animals are intelligent, that they have agency and intention, that we can live in alliance with them, and that that will that kind of alliance, that kind of respect and interaction, can restore the earth and uh, free us from this destructive trajectory that we're on. And I think there are. I not only think, I know that there are many other people on the planet who have different relationships with different animals, and when all those stories come together, then this becomes clear. Um, I want to say I had an idea planted in my mind that I wanted to sit in council with the elephants when I went to uh, Zimbabwe um, in 2000, or uh, I think it was 2000. But I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea what that meant, how I could do that. And um, and then this elephant came forward. And so then I knew to go back to that place and see what would happen. And elephant came forward again and again and again. But there are people who have these kinds of connections with um, with lions, with um, leopards, um, with every with wolves, with every possible animal there there could be. And um, I was prepared for that many years ago uh, when I entered into an astonishing, it seemed to me, dialogue with a with a squirrel, um, which went on for a very long time. Uh, but I never expected what happened with with the with the elephants. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. What's interesting to me, Dina, is, you know, I've heard many people talk about interspecies communication and, of course, animal rights, but you're really saying something quite profound here, which I want to see if I'm understanding you correctly, that it sounds to me that your view is that if we changed our relationship with animals and experienced ourselves as peers, if you will, with animals instead of superior to animals, that that would be a leverage point or a gateway, if you will, to a radical change in how we lived the entirety of our lives. 
Well, I think so because it's such an awesome experience. And because if if you open yourself up to it and try to understand it in the way it's being presented rather than our ideas about things, um, then we're back in, again, uh, the way that indigenous people have lived on the planet until recently when they've been sort of co-opted or... Uh, uh, brought into um, Western or imperialist thinking more appropriate um, through all the ways, violence, and et cetera, et cetera. But all over the globe for thousands of years, tens and thousands of years, human beings lived in relationship with the animals. And they saw the animals as animals, and they also recognized the animals' spirit lives. So we're actually talking here about not only a relationship with a biological entity, but with a spiritual entity. Um, and, and that relationship restores our own spiritual lives. So it's all of a piece. Earth, spirit, animal, connection, intimacy, respect, um, wonder, awe, beauty. They all come together. And when we live in those ways, we live differently. We don't go and make atom bombs. That's not a logical <laughs> way of living. Dina, I saw on your website a reference calling you a quote-unquote medicine woman. I'm wondering if you're comfortable being called a medicine woman, and if so, what that means to you. I'm not comfortable being called that. And yet sometimes I yield to it and may even use it or allow it to be there because you saw it there because it's I don't have words other than that that reference to the old ways um, for the way spirit has educated me and the gifts that I've been given and so a medicine person is someone that has the ability sometimes to um, to enter into that reciprocal field in which healing can occur. Um, and uh, so there's nothing that could honor me more than to be called that. And my hope is that I use whatever that means continuously on behalf of the future that 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 the earth and and creation and the life force would be restored. This word restored, I also saw in a description of your current work in the world 
that you're committed to helping bring forth a literature of restoration. And I thought that was quite intriguing, a literature of restoration. What would that mean? What kind of literature is that? Um, that means that when we write, we, we use language, rhythm, sound, everything, um, idea, story, um, to value what is life-giving in, in the largest whole of it. And, um, and, and not to, um, be taken over by the economic and commercial values, which are so violent and very often despicable. Um, so, uh, sometimes it's simple that, that, um, in indigenous cultures and in women's culture, feminist culture, the circle replaces the straight line. And actually to sit in circle, to sit in council, to value the, the circle um, is, is a radically uh, different way of living. And and so, uh, to some extent, for me, in, in my own writing, my writing is very often circular, and um, very much perhaps present moment, rather than um, going from one point to another. And it's not necessarily what happened, but it is that there's a a center to what I'm writing, and that center is is a a magnet point um, that pulls the stories that need to be told to it. In the way of this conversation that, you know, I I can't help it. I want to keep coming back to spirit-centered, earth-centered, indigenous ways, uh, women's ways, old ways. That's the magnet point that I keep coming back to. That's a different way of talking. At least I think it is. Now, I also saw in some of your recent work references to something called the Fifth World and a type of manifesto that you've written called 19 Ways to the Fifth World. I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about that. What's the fifth world and 19 ways? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> um, there's a concept in um, Native American and other indigenous uh, cultures of the fifth world, which is the next world, um, a real way of living that is not um, the... Uh, the fourth world that we're in that is both violent and corrupt and uh, disconnected from um, the earth and, and where we're disconnected from each other. And the the term the fifth world not only comes from that, it comes from a beautiful poem uh, by uh, Joy Harjo about what it would be like in the fifth world. It's a kind world, and it has the values of the 
old, old ways or, or the indigenous ways. And so there was a kind of download that, that came to me. I don't think of it as a manifesto, but the way I think about it is that these 19 ways that, that were given are each way that the dominant culture um, would actually not like us to um, value. Um, and 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 so every time that we live according to one of these ways, and there are probably more, um, we step out of the dominant culture, the destructive ways of the dominant culture, and we enter into another way of living. So um, the first one is um, community, uh, recognizing that living aligned with community is an essential uh, way, and it's a means of transformation. So in an alienated, competitive, violent culture, community is a medicine. And sitting in council, you know, rather than having an argument or um, uh, and, and someone dominates and wins or someone has more weapons and wins, um, to sit in council and address a question and try to get wise as, um, again, Native peoples have done, Indigenous people, Native Americans have done. Um, that's a very different way of living. And looking at story as a living event that teaches us how to, how to walk, um, that's another way to recognize that spirit exists and live accordingly and to step out of uh, you must believe this to the pathless path where um, we listen to spirit and try to evaluate how we're being led really for our own sakes and all our relations. And maybe that's the very core one of the core of the 19 ways is that incredible wisdom from the Lakota Sioux people um, that if we only follow that, I think everything would change altogether. And that is Metakia Yasin, all our relations. If you recognize that every vital being is related to you and you live accordingly, everything shifts. So there, there are these kinds of ways that came through me. It's not a manifesto, it's an invitation, a desperate in invitation on behalf of the future. I'm curious if someone perhaps is listening to this who lives in an urban environment in the midst of a busy city, and they're hearing you talk about connecting with the earth and the natural world and these indigenous ways, and they might feel terribly disconnected from how do I relate to what Dina's talking about? Well, how about how can I relate? So to start out with asking, really asking that question with the possibility that one might be able to. And then how, and that is, of course, the essential thing. How do we do it when we've created an urban world? Um, there, 
pragmatic answers. Um, one of them these days is roof gardens, uh, uh, roof vegetable gardens, growing our food on t- on top of our houses, turning our lawns um, into uh, vegetable gardens, planting fruit trees um, where uh, people can just walk down the street and pick an orange in a certain climate instead of having that tree fenced in. Um, And when you plant, animals come. So making making space for it. So a friend called um, the uh, animal control people and said, there's a raccoon in my backyard. And the animal control people said, yes, it's a wild animal. It has a right to be there. Oh, okay. So instead of saying, oh, my God, I've got to do something about it, it's how do I live with a raccoon? How do I live with the coyotes? How can they be gifts? And in the way that we have populated the world, we're going to have to ask that question. How can we live in a real relationship with the animals uh, where their habitat and our habitat interact and we allow everyone uh, their lives. Now, Dina, a couple of times you've mentioned the power of community, community in healing, and community as a way to this fifth world. And I'm curious if you can give us some ideas of how people might be able to generate more community in their life. You mentioned how it's the antidote to the kind of alienation so many people feel? Um, you know, so many ways. So let's say you're a dreamer and you're a secret dreamer because no one's really listening to your dreams. So maybe, you know, every Thursday night you open your house and and you say, let's, let's tell dreams. So in the old ways, people came together and they told dreams because they wanted to find out how to live. We can do that again, and we need to do that again. Or we just open the house and we say, "We've got a we've got a problem, uh, you know, in the community. Let's get together regularly, the young people, the old people, and um, have some food and sit in council." So for me, council and community are uh, are interrelated. Um, how that we keep asking the question how do we work this out how do we do this together what can we offer each other the the ways are um multiple as long as we don't ask how we get paid for it how we make money that's not the issue issue is how how do we solve problems together without thinking of personal financial gain or cost. Can you tell us a little bit about the Dare circles that you've been participating in and Mm -hmm. and how that might be a type of community model that people might be inspired by? 
um, when uh, when I met the ambassador for the first time, I came back and I spoke to people that I was gathering with. I was teaching a class at that time that was essentially entitled um, How Can We Be Healers in the 21st Century? This was uh, early on. And um, I told them about having met the elephant, and I told them about the social organization of of the elephant and their community ways of living. Um, They are really advanced in terms of uh, their social organization. And uh, and I also told them about having been um, with a uh, a Shona healer, and he had a, a community gathering. Well, actually, people just came to his house, and and they called it Dare, and Dare means council in in, in the Shona language, and they came for healing. And so I told them about it, and one woman in the group said, "Well, why don't we do it?" And I said. Oh, well, okay. So we had a meeting in April. Um, must have been 1999 then. Um, and we designated the first Sunday after the new moon for that meeting. And we invited the spirit, and we sat in council and addressed the question, and we told dreams. And we did some healing work with each other, and we listened to each other's stories. Little did I know that my okay, why not, was going to change my entire life. Uh, We meet at my house on the first Sunday after the new moon. We never know who's coming, though there's a core group that holds it. We invite spirit. We do healing work. We tell stories. We listen to dreams. We listen to dreams before we sit in council because very often the dreams tell us what the question is going to be because when you listen to each other's dreams over time, the dreams change, particularly if you don't listen psychologically, but you listen in the old ways about imagining that the dreams have come to us as a community to teach us how to live. Um, so the dreams change and they inform us and we follow them. We begin to live by them. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, it's taken a lot of work and care and thoughtfulness to create Dare. Um, So we will be celebrating the 15th year in April. And there are Dare's all over. There's a very successful Dare in Oakland. Um, There's a very successful Dare, uh, meaning ongoing, vital, alive, in uh, Cape Cod, there have been dares in various places. They come and go. Um, sometimes they stop for a while, then they come back. So um, it's the community coming together with deep respect for whoever walks in the door. So very often I say, as we gather, I say, um, whoever's come in is an angel. And our task is to find out who that person really is. So the usual ways in which we um, evaluate people, what do you do, how much money do you work, where did you go to school, you know, etc., 
cetera, et cetera. None of that is there. It's really like, you know, who are you really? What are you thinking? What are you caring? How are you hurting? How can we help each other? Um, very different questions, and it's extraordinary. And by meeting in this way regularly, we are all changed. I'm a very different person than I was 15 years ago. And so are the people who who come. Now, Dean, I just have two final questions for you. (laughs) Here's the first one. I was reading on your website about the appearances of rainbows in your life. And you offered this phrase, the rainbow as a covenant. And it reminded me of some different, really important times in my life when I've seen Mm. rainbows. And I thought that was so beautiful, rainbow as covenant. And I'd love to hear what you mean by that phrase. Well, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. That um, after the flood, a rainbow appeared. And the divine said, I will not do this again. And the covenant is reciprocal. The idea was, in in the way the story is told there, that that the humans would change their ways, and the divine recognized that. And so this uh, emergence of the presence and of such beauty um, was a way of recognizing that um, new lives were going to begin. Well, we've sort of violated that, and um, uh, that's why uh, James Baldwin said the fire next time. And we see that happening. We're setting the earth uh, again and again and again in a thousand different ways. Not that we're going to be punished, but we're doing it. And so um, when when I'm working on something, when I'm thinking about something, when I'm involved with something and I see a rainbow, it often feels like spirit is saying, okay, here's a covenant. We are in alliance now. So I'm glad you've had that experience. And it would be interesting to go back and see what you were deeply involved within that moment, Tammy, that maybe spirit was speaking to you and saying, yes, I'm here and we're here together. Okay, Dina. And finally, here you are at 77 years of age. And looking at the amount of work you've created in the past two decades and talking with you today, I'm so impressed by how passionate and engaged you seem in life, how vital, how much you seem to be turned on by living. And I'm curious to know where you think that sense of being so engaged and vital and interested in life comes from here at 77 years of age? Oh, well, it took 77 years to get here. <laughs> um, I, um, I feel the presence of spirit, and I see beauty, and, um, and I love this earth. And I can't bear the pain of its suffering. And so I am committed. I would like 
to feel when I leave the planet that things will be different for the future and that, you know, the the forest will be restored and the elephants aren't being poached and the wolves will roam and people will be joyous in the old ways because they're connected again. So it's, <laughs> it doesn't ever stop that passion, but it's connected with the ongoing sense of the presence of the rainbow as covenant. I've been speaking with Dina Metzger with Sounds True. Dina has created an audio program called This Body, My Life. And she's also featured in an audio collection called Cancer as a Turning Point. Dina, I'm so happy I had this chance to reconnect with you and to find out some of the things that are important for you right now and to hear you taking such a strong stand for the presence of spirit and its importance in your life. It's beautiful and inspiring to me, so thank you. Thank you very much, Tammy, for this opportunity to speak with you and everyone. Bless you. Soundstree.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.